The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we have given ourselves over to singing songs, God, so many of the songs that have been selected for us to to worship you in, in voice and in music have been all about how we come to know you and how you reveal yourself. Lord, what a wonder it is that the creator of everything wants to know us and you call us to know you, to have a relationship with you. So Lord, in the passage that is before us today, this happens once again where we marvel that you would reveal yourself, that you would come and and eat with man, that you would reveal truth, and that you would beckon Abraham to know more about who you are so that he can guide and direct his family. Lord, we desire that now. We desire to know you more fully. So Lord, as we work through this passage by your Holy Spirit, help us in that endeavor to know you, to, to behave as your children, as we ought to behave in this world, this world which needs so desperately to have ambassadors of Christ. That is our prayer. Hear it, Lord, and we ask that you would answer. Amen. Please have a seat, everybody. We are continuing our study in the book of Genesis. Today we find ourselves in Genesis 18, as was the scripture reading. And even in the prayer, before getting into the sermon, what has really been impressive is this idea that God wants to be known. God is not a God who wants to be hidden. He's a God who wants to be known. So I have to start out with, the question of how do you know someone? How do you know someone? And how do you become true friends with someone? And it's a combination of things, how you know someone and how you become a friend. It's a combination of things. Just yesterday, Vanessa and I returned from spending some time away celebrating our anniversary. And we... We went over these kinds of questions together because what we notice is we were, we are, and we will continue to be impressed by how we continue to learn more about one another as we go through life together. We're getting to know each other more and more. We're becoming better friends. It's a a filling out of the relationship. And the capacity of the friendship is continuing to grow. We're becoming more and more our truest friends here in this life between humans. And this is what's happening also as we look at the passage between Abraham and God. They are becoming friends. They are becoming friends. And how do you become true friends? How do you know someone? Well, What's happening here in the text, what we've been seeing, is that God continues to come to Abraham. God continues to speak to Abraham. And Abraham is changing in relationship to what God is doing in his life. He's getting to a place where he's wanting to draw nearer to God. Not just to go and worship from a place, but to have real and deep and abiding fellowship with his maker. It's amazing. And it makes me wonder, like, who is this God? Who is this God who wants to be known by man? Who is this God? He wants to be not only known by man, but he wants to be friends with his creation. He wants to be friends 
with Abraham. He wants to be friends with us. We see this in particular in the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah calls Abraham the Lord's friend. Listen to this flow of the verses from Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. It says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Abraham is a friend of God's, and God's friendship with Abraham brings about tremendous reward. And here we see that Abraham is referred to as the Lord's friend. From our introduction to Abram, who we now know is Abraham, all the way from the the ending of chapter 11, we're introduced to this man and to his family. All the way through, we're seeing that there's this relationship building aspect between him and God. God is not only working through a nation, he's now working through a specific man. And this causes me to return once again to my question. How do you know someone? How do you know someone? And how do you become friends? The answers to these questions will be covered by each point in the sermon today as we're going through the passage. And the first one is the Lord is approachable, verses 1 through 8. He comes to Abraham and to Sarah. The Lord is approachable. One of the ways you get to know someone is you can approach one another. The Lord is approachable. Then not only is he approachable, allowing time to be spent with him, but in that time together, the Lord is a revealer. The second point, the Lord is a revealer. Verses 9 through 15. He reveals more of who he is and why he's come to the tent of Abraham and to Sarah. All of this is building to our final section that we'll cover. And what we'll see there is that the Lord is an inviter. The Lord is an inviter. He invites participation, verses 16 through 33. He wants the relationship with Abraham to be that which can rightly be described as his friend, a participant, a participant in the the governance of the world and justice and righteousness. The Lord approaches, he reveals, and he invites participation. But what is the response of sinful man? What is your response when these types of attempts are made either by God or by others that that God has put around you? So often, when you are approached or when something is revealed or you're invited to participate, the response is actually fear because we want to kind of keep close hold because when we open up to real relationship, that's risky business because now we are becoming vulnerable to someone else. And how are they going to behave themselves as your friend? Are they going to take what is precious to you and treat it tenderly, carefully? Are they going to steward that relationship or are they going to use it and abuse it? So oftentimes, whether it's with God or with those that God puts around us, we have a fear response. We have a fear response. It's risky business to let someone in deeply, to allow there to be loving kindness and provide mercy and tenderness. We want those things, but we also know that it may not happen the way it's supposed to. So we tend to guard ourselves. God wants us to be just and righteous in our dealings. So often, though, we we fail to uphold that. And this is where grace comes in. This is where grace abounds. Even as Seth was giving in our announcements, we want that to be a part of our relationship with each other 
because we see that God extends that type of love and kindness to us. He bestows grace upon us. We don't deserve it, and yet he freely gives it to us. This is the kind of relationship that we see described here in the text. This is how we relate to God. And it means not only that God is approachable, not only that God is able to reveal what is going on, or not only that he invites us to participate, but that we have to do the same because that's how relationships work. He's modeling for us in the passage what it's like to be a friend of God. And what he wants in return is for Abraham to continue to grow in his relationship with him. And he wants Sarah right there too. We'll cover more of that as we go into the sermon. Again, this is how relationships develop among fellow image bearers in the community that we're placed in. It's how relationships develop here in the church among brothers and sisters in Christ. It's how our relationships deepen within the family, between husband and wife, between parents and children, and then even between children and our parents, if they're still alive and with us. So our first point that we're going to look at is the Lord is approachable. The Lord is approachable. What we see from the very first verse is that the Lord is the one that initiates the interaction. The narrator says for us, and the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So this isn't Abraham necessarily going out and trying to find the Lord. It's the Lord coming to Abraham. And yet Abraham doesn't even know it's the Lord that's coming. We're privy to that as readers But all we know from the text is that Abraham sees there's some folks showing up. Three men are there. Abraham notices three men approaching, and he grants grants homage to these men. He goes out to them. It says in verse 2 that he, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw him, what does he do for all you runners in the congregation? That's right. He ran. And he runs later on in the passage, too. He runs to the herd. So we know Abraham's a runner. When he saw them, he ran from the tent. He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. He bows himself to the earth. And you've already heard in the scripture reading, and if you're like most here, I have to just pause to to address this. There's these three men, and three men. And we get this description from the narrator that the Lord is coming to Abraham. And then when he looks up, he sees three men. And as Christians who study Scripture, we're like, oh, this is different. Three men and the Lord. What is going on here? It leaves you asking, who are these three men? And from what we have in this chapter that we're going to be going through and the chapter to follow, we have some pretty good clues as to what this is. First, I believe it is a theophany. So it's an, it's an appearance in scripture of who, who God is. He's revealing himself in a way that can be seen by man. So that's called a theophany. God is revealing himself. And it's in a very present form. And in this case, it's in the presence of a man, which is not typical for Yahweh to present himself as a man. But that's how he's being described here. Later on in this chapter, the revealed name of God is being used to describe one of the three. That's when all the capital letters of, of uh, all the letters of Lord are capitalized. That's, that's how our translators help us see that that's Yahweh. It's how the Hebrew scriptures would have, have put it there. So that's being used to describe one of these three. But we also see that the Lord is traveling with two companions. At the end of chapter 18, we see specifically that Abraham and the Lord are in a discussion together. They're by themselves. 
the Lord, Yahweh, God Most High, and Abraham. And then two, the companions depart. And then if you read ahead in, in chapter 19, chapter 19 begins with two angels are going down into Sodom to carry out their mission. So what I believe we're seeing from this passage and from what we see in the, in the chapter to follow is that we have a theophany. We have the Lord present. He's there. And he's traveling with two of his angels. So that's what I, that's what I believe we're seeing here in, in the text. I believe it's the Lord and two of his angels. So just dealing with that because it can be kind of confusing of what's going on there. But now returning to what Abraham's doing, we see that he is immediately ready to jump into hospitality mode. Three men are present. They've just come from somewhere. It's the heat of the day. And Abraham's response is, I want to care for these travelers. I want to care for these men. And he jumps into hospitality. He invites them in verse three. And he said, oh Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Of course, we see, oh Lord, or my Lord. Uh, that's a term in the Hebrew that can be used for a, a wide range of things. It can be specific to the Lord God Almighty, but it's not the same as all capital L-O-R-D, Lord Yahweh. It can mean master in, in the Hebrew. Or we could, we could say, you know what, maybe Abraham's recognizing like this, this is the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Whatever it is, he's ready to show care. He is showing godly characteristics in caring for these, these men. And he practically wants to meet the needs of the travelers. How does Abraham relate? He's been a traveler. He's been a sojourner. And so the first thing he wants to offer up is a way to wash. You've just traveled. You've come off the, the heat of the desert and the dust. It's clinging to you. Let me bring a little bit of water so you can wash. And then you can rest yourselves under the tree. This is a place of shade. It's in the heat of the day. And he wants to feed them. He wants to provide them with some kind of sustenance. So in verse 5, he says, While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. He wants them to be able to rest in the shelter of his tent, under the, the tree where he's residing. He wants to provide them with water to wash and food to eat. And the only thing we get from these men is, so they said, do as you have said. That's it. Abraham is providing himself a, a, a place for these men. He's saying, I will take care of your needs. And they said, do as you have said. And so Abraham's heart is now put on display and he jumps into action. He's a true servant. He's a, a humble and he's a dedicated man of God who wants to care for these travelers. We see in verses six, seven, and eight, all the actions that Abraham just rushes into in order to provide what he's told these men he will do. If you remember, he, he called it a, a small morsel of bread that he wanted to provide them with. Okay, remember that? Well, he kind of he takes it down from where he, what he's really going to do because the meal that is provided is more of a, a kingly feast. Like he's going to lavish upon these men the first class treatment, everything that he can do to, do, to uh, care for them. He rushes into the tent and says, Sarah, quick, get three sayas of flour, fine flour, and knead it and make the cakes. And he runs to the herd and he selects a good and tender calf and has it prepared by one of his men. And then he gets the curds and the milk and the calf and he prepares it and he sets it before them. This would have taken some time, but he sets it before them. And then he stands by under the tree while they ate as a servant ready to provide anything else that they might need. He's truly hospitable. Somewhere in this interaction, I, I believe he understands who's there. But I also think that this is very much the heart of Abraham, too. He's not only just serving the Lord, but he sees that there are travelers that are in need, and he wants to be hospitable to them as a man of God. 
Abraham is a model host. And just as the Lord approached Abraham, Abraham was ready to show great and abundant hospitality. He was ready to receive them and then to lavish upon them every bit of loving kindness he could offer as a a host. And from what the author reveals, we know that this is the Lord. That's how the passage starts out. The Lord appeared to Abraham. And he's ready. He's ready to be hospitable to them. And in the truest sense, he showed hospitality to angels. That should ring a bell for those of us who have studied Hebrews, because in Hebrews 13, 2, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I'm fully convinced that Abraham figures out who he's entertaining, so it's not unawares to Abraham, but for us, as being hosts and being hospitable, this could, that could be a, very much applicable to us. Remedy Cafe and the people that you serve there. You never know. You never know. But now here, clearly the Lord is approachable. He's approachable. He is acting like a man who is ready to receive what Abraham has to offer. He's approachable, but he also has come to Abraham's tent and to Sarah's tent. Abraham is willing to receive, and he's willing to receive these visitors with eagerness. And he humbly cares for these three. He breaks from his own afternoon rest. We saw that he was resting in the heat of the day. Abraham does away with his own care, his own needs, in order to jump into service of others. Jumps into service. And and this is no small morsel of bread, like I mentioned. This is a feast. He's pulling out all the stops to care for his travelers. It's a lavish meal. And just for the purposes of perspective, three sayas of flour. What do you think that is? What do you think that equates to in terms of our weight and measures? Well, it's 20 to 25 quarts of flour. So how much bread can you make with 20 to 25 quarts of flour? A lot, a lot of bread. So it's it's a lavish meal. Quick, Sarah, make 20 to 25 quarts worth of flour into bread. We need it right now. (laughs) The men are here. And then if anyone has actually prepared an animal from on the hoof to then a meal, that's not a slow process either. So this hospitality, it's, it's being spread out. It's put on display. Abraham is caring for these men. He is giving to them. He's lavishing upon them. And I cannot overstate that here in the beginning of this chapter, the Lord is approachable. The Lord is receiving an opportunity to be served by Abraham, to have a meal brought to him, to have his needs met. Not that I don't think God needs to eat, but still, like, he's receiving what Abraham has to offer. He's allowing Abraham to care for him. And even while Abraham is acting in a manner that is worthy of one who is called a God-fearer, one who is walking with God, He's able to put that on demonstration. He's able to do what God has called him to do. And what we're going to see later as being one who, who seeks after righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice means you care for people. You provide for their needs. You lavish upon them extra if you have extra to give. In church, in a world that seems increasingly hostile, increasingly divided, It's through the most simple methods of providing a meal, providing someone's needs, being hospitable, that a lot of those barriers are brought down. Here we have before us in the text, God, almighty God, sitting in front of the tent of Abraham and Sarah. God, the creator. And he's allowing an interaction to take place between him and his servant Abraham around a meal. You can't get much more of a, of a discrepancy there between something extremely high, and then which is the creator, and then the creature. And yet around the table, they're sharing in this meal. 
It's an encouragement for us to be hospitable. It overcomes a lot of barriers. It, it allows approachableness to occur around the table. This is where I say that God wants relationship. He desires it. He's willing to engage with his servant Abraham in order to have real and meaningful relationship. He doesn't remain hidden away, but he comes for a purpose, which is what we're going to look to now in the second section. The Lord is a revealer. And as we read the passage and as we read it and as we work through the text, we see his purpose for coming. His purpose to coming, for coming to Abraham and Sarah's tent. We see that the Lord is a revealer. So after the meal or sometime during the meal, we see that the Lord initiates conversation. How long were they there? Not sure. How long were they there before the conversation picks up? It's not said. But we're aware that through the conversation, And through conversations we have, we get to learn more about one another. So God starts a conversation with his servant Abraham. And it says, they, in verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. So right off the bat, I would say, other than them saying, do as you've said, This is the reason why God is there. He wants to reveal something about moving his relationship with this family forward. And he starts out with, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham says, she is in the tent. This is the Lord revealing his purpose for coming. He has spent a great amount of time. If we look at these last few chapters we've been studying in Genesis, a great amount of time with Abraham. A great amount of time with Abraham and revealing to him what it means to be part of a covenant relationship with God. But remember, Sarah's going to be very involved in this covenant coming about. Sarah's an integral part, actually, to having a son being born to Abraham and Sarah. She's got to be a part of this for the covenant promise to be fulfilled. But in order for that to happen is... Sarah's faith needs to be present like Abraham's faith. Sarah's faith, she's married to Abraham. Her faith needs to be present like Abraham's faith. For not only is God in covenant relationship with them, but they are in covenant relationship with each other. This is important for us as married couples to think about as we're in ministry with one another. We need to be grabbing a hold of and walking ahead in our Understanding of who God is together. We need to be trusting God together. Sarah needs some assistance here. Because God is going to bless all the nations of the earth through this marriage. And look at what the Lord does. He returns to the importance of the promise and proclaims it again. He's revealing his purpose for coming. In verse 10, we read in verse 10, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. You see, Abraham has heard this promise. He's heard it. God has impressed it upon him. In chapter 17, God even says, you're going to change your wife's name from Sarai to Sarah because this is going to happen. We don't have the indication that she's being talked to by God, but clearly, if Abraham's going to go change her name, she's got to understand why. So it's been shared with her. Oh, oh, by the way, God showed up and he made a new promise. And so I have to go through this thing called circumcision and uh, your name's going to be changed. And all of this is is meant to bring about a child through you. Sarai, now Sarah, should be aware of God's plan. But she's not believing it. Her faith isn't there yet. God has come to reveal more to her, to bring her along so that 
this can happen. We know there's background information, verse 11, that they're old, they're advanced in years, and she's unable to have children. So Sarah, in verse 12, responds to what she hears. This is her response. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's impossible. It's not going to happen. I can't have a child. That's what Sarah's thinking. She's like, Abraham already told me this. I don't know why he went through his circumcision. That seemed kind of silly. We're not going to have a kid. It's not going to happen. But God returns to the promise. The promise is important. And he proclaims it again because Sarah does not believe it yet. And he's revealing his purpose for coming. The Lord is a revealer. The Lord asks Abraham about his about this. He's talking to Abraham while Sarah is listening. Okay? God is not uh, stupefied that, well, Sarah's not around. Well, I'll just talk to Abraham. Sarah's listening. God knows. He's omniscient. He knows where Sarah is. He knows where her ears are. And he's speaking in such a way that she can listen. And it's important that she does. So then the Lord continues speaking in verse 13. He says, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Remember, Sarah laughed to herself. God speaking to Abraham says, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Sarah's listening to this. All of that that she was doing was to herself. God is aware of what's going on in her heart. So he speaks it. He speaks it out loud. God is aware. He wants her to know that, not, that God is not inconvenienced by impossibilities. He's the creator. He wants Sarah to know that, yes, this is, this is pretty big, but I have it handled. I can do it. That's why he says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why would you laugh? If I said it, believe me, I can do it, is what God is saying. And he's saying this so that Sarah can hear. This is the promise. Abraham and Sarah. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah is clearly afraid. God just spoke to her husband Everything that she was speaking in her heart, presumably out of the hearing of the people outside, but God knows all things. He knows our hearts perfectly. The Lord knows her disbelief. So she does what most do in her situation. She denies it. She lies about it. She realizes not only is God speaking to Abraham, but he's now speaking to me as well. And so she gives a response. Verse 15, but Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Now look at God's response. The judge of all the earth. Look at God's response. He said, no, but you did laugh. She denied it. She lied about it. The judge of all the earth. She's lying directly to him. And he gently rebukes her. He wants her. She is his. He has chosen her to be a part of the promise. But he needs her faith to be like that of her husband's and to believe him that what is going to happen is going to happen. He gently rebukes her. He corrects Sarah for her good. And he does it gently. God corrects Sarah for her good and he does it gently. And we know from scripture that it yields a reward. For in Hebrews 11, verse 11, we read, by faith, 
Sarah has faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. What God did was for her good. He does so gently and it, it brings about the exact result God was wanting. A faithful response. A faithful response. This reveals why the Lord was there. The Lord shows up to Abraham and Sarah's tent. Why? So he could bring Sarah along as well. You see, Sarah did not have peace within her. She agonized about being childless. We know that that was just an undercutting of her as a woman. She could not produce a child. That was devastating to her. She came up with another plan. Here, take Hagar, my servant girl. Have a child by her. But that didn't fill the bill. That left her empty as well. God had a different plan. It was one that was going to take place inside of the covenant bond of the marriage between one woman and one man, Abraham and Sarah. That was God's plan. He has a covenant that he has planned, and he's going to use a covenant partners in marriage to fulfill that plan. The Lord was present there at the tent to draw Sarah into a place of participation with him, just like her husband, to have faith and to believe, to believe in the promise that was being made. The Lord is a revealer. He's there to reveal more about himself. He comes to the tent to converse with Abraham in such a way while Sarah is listening to the conversations that, that she also is able to participate. So culturally, she's going to probably be supposed to be out of the, out of the sight. I mean, it's, it's men that are there, and she's the wife. And there at that time, she probably should have been in the tent. But God speaks in such a way that she can hear, that she can be engaged in this conversation. And then somewhere in there, it almost switches to God's actually talking directly to her. Not just through Abraham, but to her. God knows what he's doing. He knows who he's talking to. And he knows that a gentle rebuke, along with an affirmation that nothing is too hard for him, will have the intended result upon her heart. And she does indeed bear a son. If you read ahead, you know that the promise does come about. She bears a son. The son of the promise is born to her, Isaac, the son of the promise. And that continues to point us forward. As we're moving through Genesis, it points us forward to God's plan of redemption of what he's doing. Ever since the fall, there was a promise made to the woman that she would bear an offspring. And this plan, this plan of redemption is being advanced. Nothing is too hard for him. He puts this undeniable mark. He puts this undeniable mark upon this couple saying, this is not something man can do. This is only something God can do. God is in the business of redeeming. He's in the, I think one of, I don't know if it's Ben or Seth, the impossible redemption story. That belongs to God. That's God's. And here he's saying, I know what I'm doing. You cannot take credit for what is going to happen. I'm sovereign over all things. I open and I close the womb when it is time. And he uses man to advance his plan. But remember, there's gravity involved in a relationship with God because even though God is sovereign and he uses man to advance his plan, he still holds us responsible for when we fail to trust him. There's still responsibility placed upon us even though God remains sovereign throughout it all. It's one of the mysteries of God. He's a judge of all the earth. He's merciful, but he's a just judge. And, and what we just looked at, he does not let a lie stand. And he corrects Sarah gently. This is his character, the judge of all the earth. He is ready to correct and to do so gently. This is what we see in how he acts towards those who he has chosen. This is how God acts towards his chosen. He corrects gently. 
those who are his, whom he has declared as, as his covenant people. So friend, how do you respond to when the judge of all the earth gently corrects you? This is how God corrects his chosen people, gently. He's the judge. He'll come alongside and he'll let you know that's not what you should be doing. That's not true. It's not correct. What do you do? Have you been pushing against his effort? Have you been stifling what he's trying to do in your life? Or are you yielding to him? Those are good things to consider as we just went through this section on God being the revealer. Because in in moving forward, we've already looked at the Lord as approachable. We've looked at him as the revealer. Now we're going to see that the Lord is also an inviter. He invites. He wants his chosen people to do as he does, to participate with him in doing righteousness and justice. This is our third point. The Lord is an inviter, verses 16 through 33. The Lord not only is there to help bring Sarah along, but he also wants Abraham to grow in his role as a blessing to all nations. And as one who who does that, which is righteous and pursues justice. Because That's what God is interested in, and he wants Abraham to be his minister of providing righteousness and justice. So how does he do this? How does he bring Abraham along so that he can invite him to do this? Well, Abraham still being the good host that he is, he he departs the place. When the men are ready to leave, he goes with them. Abraham walks with them. In verse 16... Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Abraham went with them. And as Abraham is going with them, again, the narrator's perspective on what's going on, there's a discussion that takes place. It appears to be the Lord, and he takes counsel with his two angels that are there. And either Abraham is outside of earshot or within, it's unclear, but it's clearly a discussion that's in the counsel of the Lord with his advisors. In verse 17 and 18, this is what we read. So as they're walking, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here's the question God's asking. Should I, should I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's gonna be great. He's gonna bless all the nations of the earth. It'd probably be helpful for him to know more about who I am, what I'm about, my righteousness and my justice how I cannot stand wickedness and must punish it when it shows up? Should I reveal this to him? Is he ready? Is he in that place now in the relationship where he's ready to receive more so that he can truly be a blessing, that he can command his family? It is as if the Lord is reasoning that in order for Abraham to do what he's been appointed to do, he must have a better grasp of the consequences of wickedness. And we pick that up in verse 19. This is the the verse probably that has just been hammering on me the most as I've studied this passage. Verse 19 reads, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. God's asking, should I keep from Abraham what I'm about to do? I have chosen him, and this is what I want from him. I want him to command his children and his household after him. Fathers, mothers, this is what we're to do in following in the footsteps of Abraham, commanding our children 
and our household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. The decision is made, and the Lord proceeds to invite Abraham into what is about to take place. This council, whatever it looks like, takes place. And God's decision is, yes, I want to invite Abraham in. So verse 20 says, I believe now speaking to Abraham, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom, which of course Abraham knows all about Sodom, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So what will he do? What will Abraham do? He's just been revealed by God what's about to take place. In addition to God's visit to Abraham and Sarah's tent, there's another part of this this journey that needs to take place. He He needs to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if it's really as bad as the outcry that's come up to him if it really is that way. And so we looked at the approachableness of God in the first point, but here it is again. He is approachable. He wants, he's inviting Abraham into this, what's about to happen, and he's saying, now Abraham, what, what do you think? This is my plan. What do you think, Abraham? This is the friend of God. Remember we talked about it in the introduction? What is the friend of God going to do? Is he going to be a yes man? Is that what a friend does? And just say, okay, God, whatever you say. What does a true friend do? And again, I I mentioned this earlier, but this is a staggering picture. God Almighty is conversing with Abraham, his chosen servant, and he's bringing him in. He's inviting him in to say, weigh in, Abraham, on what I'm about to do. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you think. And church, that's how God wants us to be too. He wants to know what we think in light of what's going on in the world, in light of the scriptures we're reading. This is an invitation to Abraham, but I want you to hear it as an invitation to us as well, as his chosen people. He invites us into relationship with him, especially as we engage him in prayer. And what does Abraham show? He shows he's willing. He's willing to engage with the Lord. He's very willing to engage with the Lord, and it's pretty magnificent to see how how this matter of importance gets, gets going. He has just been declared by God to be a minister of righteousness and justice. And in verse 23, we see that righteousness is very important to Abraham. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's what's on on Abraham's mind. So God has revealed to him, like, I need to go check out Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham immediately thinks, if God goes there, I think I know what's going to happen. The judge of all the earth is going to judge, and he's going to wipe out the place. But what if there's some righteous there? And he's behaving as God wants him to behave. He's concerned about the righteous. He knows God will take care of the wicked in their time. So he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then as was in the scripture reading, there's this this cascading uh, um, dialogue that goes on of, well, if there's 50, if there are 50 righteous, would you wipe out? the righteous and the wicked on behalf of 50. And God, who invited Abraham into this discussion, says, no, for 50 righteous, I will not destroy the city. Amazing. God invites Abraham, his friend, in. Abraham is supposed to be a minister of righteousness and justice. 
And he's appealing to God's righteousness and saying, God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So they're treated the same. It's amazing. In verse 25, it says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Church, we can, we can appeal to God in the same way. We can say, God, it's, it's even hard to go there, but God, like, I want to appeal to your character in this situation and say, are you really going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked? God listens to his servant Abraham over and over again. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth, this title that we see, do what is just. This is the friend of God interceding with the creator. And he goes through this for 50, for five less than 50, and, and on down the line until he gets to 10. God, if there's 10, 10 righteous, would you still wipe out the city? God says, no. If I find 10 righteous, I will spare the wicked. I'm going to be merciful towards the wicked while I preserve the righteous. God's character is appealed to. And sadly, as we'll see in the future, there's not even 10. Not even 10. But God is inviting Abraham in. Abraham joins in with God in this discussion, appealing to God's character and behaving as the minister God has established him to be, one who is going to bless all the nations of the earth. How is he going to do that? By administering righteousness and justice, by commanding his household in the same, by leading his family in this, by being affirmed by God that that is what he wants him to do. God doesn't tell Abraham to go away he keeps the discourse going. Abraham is being affirmed in his role as a minister of righteousness and justice. But he doesn't have the last word. I mean, God is still sovereign. God is in control. This friend of God provides us with a tremendous example. And I would say if, if you're more prone to pray that everyone that you see in a certain people group or a certain demographic that seems to be walking away from God that you just condemn and say, God, just have your way and just lightning bolts from heaven come down. That's not what we see here. What we see is Abraham pleading with God to be merciful to those who might be righteous in a crowd of wicked. We should pray similarly. Don't allow yourself to be so callous to what you see going on in the world around us that you just, whole, just wholesale do away with a segment of the population. Pray for the righteous and that God would be merciful towards the wicked. That salvation would come. Throughout this, Abraham discusses with the Lord, but God knows when it's time to move on and when to act. And in verse 33, and the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So I go back now as we're through our three points to ask the question, who is this God? Clearly, he's a God who is approachable. For he not only approaches Abraham and Sarah, but he allows himself to be approached by Abraham. And the Lord is a revealer of his plans and promises. He does not hold back that which is necessary for his own, his chosen, to have a good and meaningful relationship with him, to have faith. Sarah is aided in her faith and in her understanding of the promise because God directs his statement of promise in her hearing. He's gentle. He's, he gently rebukes her when she has disbelief when she denies her laughter about the preposterous notion of her having a child, he says, no, the judge of all the earth knows what he's doing. And this yields a faithful response. And the Lord invites participation. He wants Abraham to pass along to his household the importance of following the command of God. 
Therefore, he reveals the devastating consequences that are about to befall Sodom and Gomorrah for their abject pursuit of wickedness. Who is this God? He is clearly a God who desires meaningful relationship with those who belong to him. But still the question remains, yet to be answered, how does a person become one who belongs to the Lord? For we are all sinners. We've all departed from God's standard of righteousness. So how does one become a chosen one of God, a follower of Christ? He desires righteousness and justice, and yet as sinners, we go in the opposite direction of that. Sin flies in the face of righteousness and justice. The answer that is most fitting as to how we might know, be known as a friend of God, a friend of God like Abraham, is found in the Gospel of John. So if you want to turn to John 15, I'd say it's a result of forgiveness. And it comes through the blood of Christ that we can be known as a friend of God. In John 15, Beginning in verse 13, we read the following statement from Christ, our Savior. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If you want to be known as a friend of God, this is a great place to look and to study and to meditate upon and say, how do I be like Abraham? Well, I trust Christ. I trust all the commandments that he's given and the sacrifice that he has made. He's laid down his life for me. This is how we've been given access to God in the first place, because he's chosen us. Despite our shortcomings, despite our sins, he has chosen us and he has forgiven us. Through the power of Christ and the blood that he shed upon the cross, we have a redeemer. We've been made right. We've been made just by the work of Christ. Because the one true son of the promise laid down his life for you and for me and for the world. Now, fellow friends, the judge of all the earth This mighty and awesome God is approachable. He is a revealer of his plans and he invites participation. And what I hope you've been seeing that means throughout this discourse in Genesis 18 is as chosen by God, you are to be about his business. As chosen by God, you are to be about his business, doing righteousness and justice. May it be your pursuit in life to think, act, and do what brings about righteousness and justice in your allotted station in this life, which is most perfectly accomplished in the effectual work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it, live it, place your hope firmly in its power to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have coursed through Genesis 18 as we continue to get to know more about who you are through how you interact with Abraham, your servant, and Sarah. We thank you, God, for being one who is approachable, for revealing more of yourself. Lord, we thank you for inviting us to participate with you in this world to bring about righteousness and justice where we live. The things that we encounter each day, we can we can have an influence upon. And we pray that we would do so with gentleness. That we would bring truth to bear on situations where falsehood is present. 
Lord, we thank you for bringing about a chosen race, a royal priesthood, not only from Abraham's physical descendants, but from the spiritual progression that takes place of faith in you and what you've done. And primarily, the one true redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Heavenly Father, may we draw near to him now as we proceed to our time in the table, at the table, worshiping you in spirit and in truth as your people, as your gathered together, promised, redeemed people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.